Tag Box Talk, and this is Horse Stories with a Purpose. Who are we? We are equine educators, but we are owners. We are judges. We are competitors. We are coaches. We are volunteers. We are moms. We are horse owners just like you, and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose. Extension Horses Tack Box Talk Series Horse Stories with Purpose. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Heine with Oklahoma State University, and today we're going to be talking a little bit deeper about insulin dysregulation in horses and laminitis. So I'm delighted to have two returning guests to the program, Dr. Diane McFarland and Dr. Todd Holbrook. So welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, Diane, you got to give us a little bit of background. Um, what is your position at OSU and how are you tied in with uh, insulin dysregulation and laminitis? So, I am the Rick Stratt Professor in Equine Research and I have been at Oklahoma State now for 15 years. My specific area of research interest is in equine endocrine disease, so I study mm-hmm. mostly PPID, pituitary parts intermediate dysfunction, as well as insulin dysregulation and equine metabolic syndrome. So hopefully everybody remembers Diane from her wonderful talk about PPID. And then we also have, again, Dr. Todd Holbrook, who joined us talking about his association with the U.S. uh, endurance team and how sore he got after riding horses for a long, long time. (laughs) Now I remember that, yes. So, Todd, you deal a lot with laminitis as well in in your position, although congratulations are in order. You're actually going to be leaving us soon and joining the staff in Florida. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you. Yes, I will be uh, at the University of Florida on the internal medicine service here in a couple of months. So what is your background dealing with um, kind of laminitis and these kind of horses? So I I originally got interested in laminitis, honestly, as a... um, a student and a resident, um, Andy Parks is probably an international expert on, not probably, he is an international expert uh, on podiatry, and I got interested in laminitis back when I was a student and a resident, and I essentially got involved with some re- research at that time well before metabolic syndrome was ever understood or diagnosed in insulin. <laughs> we had no idea that it was part of the pathogenesis, but um, early in my residency, I got involved with some uh, laminitis research and carbohydrate overload and, and have pretty much stayed interested in it from a clinical standpoint for sure uh, as far as therapeutic shoeing and whatnot especially in the endocrinopathic laminitic courses um, but Diane and I have done some research as well with laminitis and endocrine diseases. So you guys have definitely joined forces to help you know advance what we know about kind of this insidious problem um, with horses. So I want you to get us uh, back on the same page here because I know there's a lot of confusion when we talk about, well, for one, we have so many terminologies and I think we change them all the time. So we've got, uh, we used to have insulin resistant. Now we talk about insulin dysregulation. We have equine metabolic syndrome. We have Cushing's, we have PPID. And they're not all the same, although some of them are. <laughs> Just <laughs> we use different terms that are more more or less scientific. So, who wants to walk us through the vocabulary? Uh, I guess that would be me. So, the easy thing is that there's two names for equine pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction (PPID). The old name is Cushing's disease. The new name is PPID. Done. 
Now, it gets a little more confusing when we talk about insulin dysregulation. So insulin dysregulation means anything to do with glucose or sugar intake and abnormal amounts of insulin that's released into the blood. Insulin resistance is a type of insulin dysregulation. It specifically talks about when your body doesn't respond to insulin correctly. Equine metabolic syndrome is the name that captures insulin dysregulation and insulin resistance, but it also is really just a, a what we call a phenotype, which is a description of a type of horse that's likely to have laminitis. So EMS is kind of an umbrella term for all those things that might lead a horse to develop endocrinopathic laminitis. Endocrinopathic laminitis is any kind of foundering that has to do with what they eat, with how they handle what they eat, so if they have a big release of insulin, if they're out on grass, if they're obese. Those horses develop endocrinopathic laminitis. Now there's even another new term oh, no. that Kristen <laughs> mentioned, and that's how. And I hate that term because I don't like the name how for a medical condition. But that's hyperinsulinemic associated laminitis. So there is a move to change endocrinopathic laminitis to how. So I'm just throwing that out in case it shows up in some things you're reading that there's yet again another name change that may happen. It's so. kind of like heaves. It's gone through every version yes. of it's name allergies, change. It's allergies. It's heaves. It's asthma. Aria. Aria. Exactly. <laughs> so you got to keep renaming things so that you feel important. Something. Something. <laughs> but I will say that PPID was renamed because it's more correct. Than Cushing's disease. Cushing's means high cortisol in the blood, and that's not actually what happens. So we renamed that. But the insulin dysregulation is probably the best catch-all name for it. EMS is a very popular name, um, but there's there's new names coming, so oh, be looking right. out for how. <laughs> so my big question then, so obviously you talked about phenotype, which just means, hey, that's what they look like. Um, that's an EMS horse. So we talk about those crusty necked horses, abdominal fat, inguinal area, all that fun stuff that is kind of the picture of those. So would a person know their horse has insulin dysregulation if they don't test it? No. <laughs> they could have a suspicion based on the body type, but really testing is going to be required to define it. So how often do people actually test their horses? I know we've done with some projects just some like oral sugar tests. Does the average horse owner, or is that something a clinician would recommend if your horse has shown some laminitis? Oh, for sure. Especially if they have a body condition that's, you know, Obesity, as far as fat deposits in abnormal areas, um, or if they're an older horse that has evidence of PPID, you know, longer hair coat, button shut out in the so, spring. So, if you get a horse that maybe has shown up with some laminitis and they're not that big obese type, is it possible that they still have insulin dysregulation? It is possible, yeah, and those are the ones that. Honestly, even as a clinician, make us, wow, okay, <laughs> scratch your head. Well, that's interesting because they don't all have that body type for sure. Two of the reasons that you might have a thin horse that has insulin dysregulation might be because you once had a fat horse and you're doing a very good job with nutritional control. And a second reason is that pain causes weight loss. 
So if you've had a horse that's chronically painful because of its feet, because of the laminitis, they'll lose weight as, as well. And then there's those head scratchers, the ones that have always been thin, but they're insulin dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So it really is important to test, especially if you've had any kind of an incidence of laminitis in your horse. But bottom line, if your horse is having some foot pain that isn't, you know, navicular or something else and has lam laminitic type hoof pain, that this might be a, an idea to test them or talk to your veterinarian that it, it's... Oh, for sure. Absolutely. So could you tell us a little bit, what does that test look like for an owner? What, how, what all is involved if they actually do need to check insulin in their horses? It's a simple blood test, really. It, it um, you know, the horses typically need to be held off feed, fasted. And so an initial screen would be just a blood test to, to measure insulin, um, you know, in a scenario where the horse has not been recently fed. Uh, there are other tests that are more that we use if, if that screening test doesn't reveal the problem, then we can do a sugar test and actually give them uh, an oral dose of um, caro syrup, white syrup, and a certain concentration and volume, and then measure the blood um, after giving that. So is that something they typically have to do in a clinic, or do you do it at the owner's facility? So what's the time period, right? Is it? Didn't we do this at like 30 minutes, 60 minutes? Like, do you have to entertain your veterinarian for that long? <laughs> we think it's important to always entertain your veterinarian. Um, a nice meal is always pleasant when we're doing an oral sugar test. Um, but actually in practice, so when we did research, we grabbed a lot of samples because we were making a very full curve if, and so we could look at some other things. But in practice, you're really just going to pull two to three samples, one and one um, somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes after you give the sugar challenge orally, which we do by getting cured. So again, that's 60 to 90 minutes hanging out with your vet. <laughs> so there is a little bit of a way around that, and that is if you don't want that first sample because you've already tested it, like Dr. Holbrook said, you can um, do that as your first line test. If that was normal, um, you can, as the owner of the horse, Go ahead and give that sugar dose, that Kiro syrup, um, and, and then your vet can come out and just get the second sample and just measure that second sample. That can save you a little time. But it's never wrong to entertain your vet for 90 minutes. <laughs> we love our vets. <laughs> so I do have a question, and this I think probably relates to this bleed over, which we've about on another episode with like the EMS horse can become a PPID horse but he doesn't have to be. Is there a seasonality with these insulin dysregulated horses and laminitis that maybe don't have PPID? So that depends where your horse lives and, and where you are. So if your horse doesn't have PPID, there's two things that can cause a seasonal occurrence of the laminitis. The first thing is what they're eating. So if you have them out on grass and that grass is full of sugar in the spring where you live, based on the type of grass, based on how much it rains, based on um, anything else that Chris would be much better to tell you because it's a nutritional thing, um, then you may see it in the spring. If the other piece of the story besides the, the sugar they're taking in in their diet is that there is a seasonal difference and what their pituitary does. And their pituitary hormones actually are additive 
to what the pancreas does, and the pancreas makes insulin. So in the fall, you're going to see more insulin being released, potentially, depending on the individual case, than you would in the other times of the year. So depending on where you are, there's been studies looking at when laminitis occurs most commonly, and it's either going to be spring or fall, but that differs by where you live. Okay, that's interesting. <clears throat> so we want to get into um, the nutritional management. And I know <laughs> you guys have managed or helped a lot of people um, with their horses. <laughs> so we always tell people, you know, we're going to try to essentially lower the amount of sugar because that's what spikes insulin, right? So we do know, like, okay, so you don't want to just give them, a, you know, five pounds of sugar cane. So <laughs> we want to lower that. Hopefully you knew that already. But. Yeah. So, um, but even people that are trying really hard sometimes have some struggles with horses still having these bouts of laminitis. So what's going on? I guess this one's, everybody's looking at me, so I'll take this question. Um, so I do think it's really important to recognize that not all of the cases are going to act the same. That's the first thing. So you really need to do a little trial and error to get it right, and you're probably going to need to measure insulin response to the meal that you have selected for this particular case. So if you decide that you're going to give a certain type of roughage hay and then you're going to give a supplement um, to be sure that they're getting enough minerals and vitamins it, it is a good idea somewhere about an hour to two afterwards to collect the blood sample and measure your insulin because a very interesting thing um, was learned not too long ago and published very recently is that some of our balancers our ration balancers actually cause an insulin spike in horses that are insulin dysregulated. They're fine in our healthy horses, but in the horses we really want to use those balancers for because we're soaking our hay and we're giving really low carbohydrate hay. So we give our balancers, some of those balancers will actually cause an insulin release in response to them. The other thing is some horses will do okay on certain grains that are being marketed or, or concentrates rather that are being marketed for being low in um, non-structural carbohydrates, but other horses don't do well on those. And so again, you really want to individualize your diet to the horse. And if they're not responding well, you want to go ahead and test and see if that diet and that horse at that amount causes an insulin release. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm going to jump in here because actually the three of us, full disclosure, we wrote some grants about this very topic. So I was really interested in that, that um, one of the unique things that people may not realize is a lot of these feeds that are you know marketed for these guys haven't been tested in an actual insulin dysregulated horse. Um, and so some of the information Dr. McFarland was talking about, there's some recent papers, two papers um, that came out. So keeping up with the data is what our job is here in academia and then passing it on to people. Um, but definitely showed that the insulin response to feeds was so much different in our, these abnormal horses that's got the troubles, right, compared to our normal horses. So you can't take information from a normal horse and just directly extrapolate it to, uh, to your insulin dysregulated horse. And... Uh, not all horses are going to have exactly the same reason that they're obese or they're insulin dysregulated. So 
maybe some ponies are fine on certain feeds and then some horses that are have insulin dysregulation might not be. And that's why I think it's a good idea if your horse doesn't respond to the first choices to go ahead and really look at it and try to come up with an individualized plan for that particular animal. Yeah, again, going back to the data, um, the, this recent paper that we were looking at um, was really fascinating to me because, you know, in, in research we take means. So we average our data right, and so then we compare the averages between the two. There's statistics. That's how we do stuff. Um, boiling this down. <laughs> but essentially, um, they really found that some of the horses that were insulin dysregulated would respond much more strongly to a feed than other horses do. So even though we have, like, population data, it could very well be that your individual horse responds differently. And I got to tell you guys, where we're really lacking the data are ponies. And Dr. Holbrook, you can jump in here. I mean, how many times do you see ponies that have laminitic episodes? Very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting, Some, some uh, as far as clinical uh information on on some of these horses that have ems and ponies um i would encourage uh owners to to encourage their veterinarians if they uh have a have a horse or a pony that's painful in the front end for instance we see laminitis much more commonly in the forelimbs but i've been really surprised that you know radiographically assessing the horse all the way around and they're not showing me any pain in the hind especially with endocrinopathic laminitis to see dramatic radiographic changes in the hind limbs as well. Um, and I, I don't know that I see that any more commonly in ponies, but I, I do see that in horses very, very commonly. They present and they have clinical evidence of foreland pain, but yet the disease is occurring in all four limbs. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, we see a lot of ponies that are obese and they have a, a breed tendency to be, you know, insulin, have insulin dysregulation. And if I can follow up on that, just one thing to keep in mind, if you have a very easy keeper, a thrifty animal, it's not a bad idea just to go ahead and do those lateral or at least um, do radiographs of the feet, possibly just one view to see if you have any laminitic changes, because often these animals don't show you conical signs until it's pretty bad in the feet. So if you're thinking of laminitis, like secondary to getting into the grain or with a colic, those animals show pain immediately. It's very profound. Horses that founder because of grass or because they are thrifty or because of their EMS, they can have a lot of change in their feet before you can even notice it. Or they might just look a little tiny bit slower when they come up or a little bit stiff and you think, ah, oh, a little bit of arthritis. So it's very well worth the money and time to take some x-rays of those feet so you know that everything is okay. So do you guys sort of recommend that almost, you know, like a wellness panel if you have an obese horse to maybe just get some baseline data on them? I think that's a good idea. You know, I don't know how many veterinarians actually do that in the field, but I think it's a very good idea um, based on their body type to, yeah, take some baseline radiographs. The other thing we commonly see just like Dr. McFarlane said, the, the onset of pain is usually very insidious. And, and so the, these horses probably have insulin spikes for, you know, periodically through the seasons for years. And you can see the growth rings change in their foot. 
So many times, even even when they're not painful, you can see changes in the growth rings of their feet. Um, but radiographs as a baseline, I think, is a great idea. So do they always show, you know, you talked about that front-end pain, uh, but I suppose a horse that maybe is more uniform in their pain, is is that a little harder for an owner to, like, key into? For sure. And that's the classic, just like Dr. McFarland said, they're a little slower coming up to feed or coming up to the barn or whatever. They're just a little stiff all the way around, and it can be more subtle to identify, for, especially for an owner. And sometimes even for the vet, because they're not always as painful to hook testers as other types of um, laminitis might be, or an abscess. Sometimes they're they're just a little bit, they're just a mystery, yep. <laughs> if you will. And so those radiographs can be very helpful. And then looking at the whole animal, the body type, measuring the insulin, the response to sugar, putting the whole picture together. Um, becomes important in making the diagnosis. So you think, oh, laminitis, foundry, oh, easy diagnosis. It's not always so easy in these horses. And, and donkeys. And donkeys. Oh, donkeys. And donkeys. Honestly, I think they can be really tough. They're yeah. very, stoic. very stoic, and, mm -hmm. and they can have dramatic radiographic changes in their foot as far as P3 rotation and, and not really Coffin show y'all. Yeah, sorry, coffin bone <laughs> rotation and not really show that much pain when they're moving around. Yeah, and so the, the donkeys, and, and we could spend a whole another hour on, on donkeys, really, uh, because I think people collect them, more or less, so there you see donkeys all over the place, and people will have them for pets, or just because they're kind of cute, or for, you know, guardian animals, but so often these donkeys don't get the same care and attention that our horses do, um, and so we could have a much higher percentage of these painful donkeys than we really know about. Oh, sure. And if a donkey doesn't move, you think, well, it's a donkey, it doesn't want to move. But that's simply not but true. But maybe that they true. don't feel like moving because they're painful. So it is their personality sometimes can add to mm -hmm. another level of the mystery of whether they're painful. So I want to kick it back because we're talking about radiographs here. So, uh, Dr. Holbrook, it's your turn again. <laughs> so... Um, if somebody has seen changes in their radiographs, maybe, you know, go a little deeper into what that may look like, but what recourse does somebody have? I mean, we always talk about nutrition, 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 which is my area, so I'm cool with that. Um, <laughs> but, like, like, what does that mean for an owner that they've seen something happen on the radiographs? Yeah, as far as what are my approaches clinically to, to address that, usually... Diet's the first one. You hit it, you know, if, if I can't control the horse's diet and influence their insulin and bring it back down to a relatively normal range, then the recurrence of laminitis, it's going to come back. So that's the first step. Uh, weight loss, hopefully, to help them get around if they're painful. Um, but that also, the weight loss helps their insulin dysregulation. And then we address the, the foot, you know, from a mechanical standpoint. We support the sole. The ideal goal really is to promote rapid sole growth so we have enough foot to work with with a farrier. Um, and essentially kind of the three main goals uh, uh, with a, a horse that is rotated. So the, the coffin bone rotates away from the front of the hoof wall and the tip of the coffin bone you know, starts to point towards the ground. And so the, the level or the, the um, depth of the sole at the point of the toe where the coffin bone is becomes more shallow and that's usually where the pain is most severe but essentially the goals are to to uh, promote <clears throat> support of the um, sole at the heel 
and then we can raise the heel because the deep digital flexor tendon attaches to the coffin bone and constantly applies tension to that bone and, and um, that's part of the pain cycle probably. So we raise the heel to reduce that tension on the um, deep digital flexor tendon and then we you know, try, try to promote sole growth. There's a number of different techniques that can um, help with that, different types of shoes that can promote sole growth. Um, you know, in the early phase when they're super painful with other causes of laminitis, we, you know, can put them in sand stalls, we use ice therapy to reduce the inflammation early on in the, in the course of, of the disease. But um, with chronic laminitis, endocrine empathic type laminitis, usually you can intervene uh, with biomechanical shoeing and help them reestablish normal hoof growth and, and promote sole growth. Now you said a, a lot of ponies present with this and are, and are donkeys, which everybody neglects. So do you do the same measures with ponies? I just imagine, you know, shoeing a horse, you know, you put on a shoe seems pretty straightforward. But what do you do on all these little tiny ponies, minis, etc. that have these little tiny feet that need some adjustment? Yeah, it's, it's, it's similar. You know, we, I use a lot of clogs that are wooden shoes that you can um, manipulate very easily without um, hammering on the, horse, the horse's foot. Uh, and you can make those to any size, really. So we recently had a laminitic uh, pony in the, in the clinic that had clogs put on. So does this mean they're better at dancing It's actually the, the veterinarian that originally described the shoe is from Oklahoma, um, and, and it's, it's called the steward clog, um, but it's used worldwide now. But there are a lot of different techniques to achieve the same biomechanical um, Awesome. Go Oklahoma. There's no magic shoes in Florida. Just to remind you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say they can be fairly magical because you can have a horse that is super painful, can barely walk, and you put these on and they'll be tentative, 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 and then they go, oh, this feels much better. And they'll start walking because they can get some relief just from being put into a position that takes some of that pressure off of where it's sore. And then over time, they'll start to really benefit from them. So shoeing can be very beneficial. Okay, so we don't want to neglect the shoeing. Um, we're going to talk about diet again here in a little bit. Are there any other adjunct therapies? I assume in if we're talking horses, everybody's going to try something and, and supplements and all that. Are, is there anything that's got some evidence behind it that can help these guys? Supplement-wise, there are a few supplements that have been tested and tested appropriately that maybe help a little bit in dropping the insulin. But for the most part, there's an awful lot of supplements on the market that have no evidence that they're beneficial. And things like chromium have been shown not to really be effective. Um, I do think it's important to be sure if you are having an acute episode of pain that you give an analgesic to manage that pain for welfare issues. And then there are some medications, Dr. Holbrook. <laughs> so there, yeah, so there, um, there are two medications, um, thyroxin, you know, way back when, uh, thyroxin has been given to obese horses for years and, um, you know, but it's not for the treatment of, of hypothyroidism. It actually influences insulin sensitivity. 
so it can promote weight loss and improve the insulin dysregulation. And then the other medication is metformin, which is a drug that's used in people with metabolic syndrome. Uh, and we think in horses that it actually um, works probably at the level of the small intestine as far as glucose absorption. Yeah. So, uh, and I've definitely used that in, in a number of horses with recurrent laminitis. And to my knowledge, there's not any data out there. But anecdotally, I feel like it reduces the frequency. And those horses that diet mm-hmm. can't result in, you know, normal insulin regulation, uh, then I'll choose one of those two drugs. Okay. And I've found that metformin, um, you know, has to be given multiple times a day. It's not that expensive. But I have definitely have clinical cases that have had recurrent laminitis, you know, for years and institute that medication after diet change didn't affect it. Uh, and it's reduced the frequency. So that may be something worth having a conversation with their veterinarian about, but not trying to grab human meds and put it in their horse. Yeah, and it's not the first line. The first line is diet management to try to change insulin sensitivity. And there are a few clinical trials that are just starting up. There's one out of Tufts looking at some other drugs that work by other mechanisms that may be beneficial, but the data is not out yet. So stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. But definitely we might have a few extra mm-hmm. adjuncts that will help you out. So good nutritionists. We're going to get into the nutrition thing because I think this is pretty um, fun and interesting. So um, we always say to use a low structural carbohydrate feed. So we want low sugar, low starch. So when I talk to people, I always say test your hay, test your hay, test your hay. I assume that's what you guys recommend as well. Test your head, yes. (laughs) So if that wasn't clear enough. Test. Okay, but here's the reality. So we don't usually test the hay and then buy it, right? So we have hay. This is what we're dealing with. We can try to select for more mature hays, try to select for hays that are not our cool season grasses that are a little riskier. But what then? So what if your test, and and maybe we should say, what are you testing it for? What's the magic number to come back on your feed test? Well, I'd probably say that Dr. Heine's the best to answer (laughs) that question on magic numbers. (laughs) So, okay, so here's the reality. We always tell people, you know, 10 to 12% non-structural carbohydrates, but... um, Again, I want to reference this really interesting paper uh, because they did some calculations with their um, trials and looked at insulin, you know, upregulation in these horses and gave some recommendations for feeds. This wasn't necessarily forage, and we know forage is digested more slowly than a concentrate. You know, anything that's pelleted and ground, they absorb faster, they eat it faster than hay. So keep in mind, hay is different than concentrate. But, so the really super cool thing that I thought their recommendation on how much, you know, grams of NSC the horse could consume or grams of starch they could consume before something happened was only, for some horses, a pound of these feeds, right? So only a pound of concentrate, even as low as a 6% starch for some of these horses that's pretty low. And if you think about how many times I got to spread this out over a day, starts to be a little tricky for owners. So what are they left to do? So one of the things I was going to suggest is if you do have all day long, instead of feeding twice a day big meals, splitting it up, 
into smaller meals because what you're trying to avoid is a sudden spike in insulin. So that is an option is to try to slow down how they eat. So you either feed small amounts um, throughout the day or you do things to slow down how they eat. So you can use hay nets to slow down how they eat. You can have slow feeders, and there's a whole slew of these now that are out on the market. The other thing you want to do is to try to leach out what you can as far as sugars from your um, hay. So that would be soaking your hay. And usually you want to soak your hay, and I'm going to guess that Chris actually has a, the numbers better, so feel free to correct me. But you want to soak it for somewhere about six to eight hours in kind of um, average temperature water, if cool water that comes out of the hose. Now, if you have warmer water, you can do it shorter, like two to three hours, and that should be enough. Now, the thing that's tricky is you can't guarantee how much you're gonna leach the sugars out of the hay. Sometimes you can get 40% sugars leaching out. Sometimes you get very little. So it absolutely can help, but it's not a guarantee. You should still test your hay to know what you're starting with. And even though it's not really practical, it would be ideal if you could test it after it's soaked as well. You don't want to leave it soaking forever because bad stuff grows in water. Um, and so you want to feed it right after you've soaked it. You also don't, you want to rinse it and you don't want to let them lick up the water because that's like sugar water. And that was the whole point of soaking it was to get rid of that. So those are some other things um, that may help is again, try to slow down how they eat so they don't have to spike and trying to make the most of your hay by trying to soak out those extra carbohydrates. And I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also mention the other big culprit, which is grass, right? Um, yes. Oh my goodness. So Diane is excited to talk about grass right I now. I just want to say <laughs> no, 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 no to the grass. But if you live someplace where there's no other option and remember... We've already heard from Dr. Holbrook that exercise is a good thing. At least I think you said that. I hope you? I said that. I think he said that. I'm not sure. It's been a long wait, wait, time. Wait, wait, wait. Exercise on a painful horse? No, not, not, on not the when they're painful. Of course, on the chubby horse. That's not yet laminitic. But um, because turnout is so good mentally, behaviorally, and exercise-wise, if you do um, want to turn out and you don't have access to a dry lot, then uh, a muzzle, a grazing muzzle is a great thing. And they're not cruel. I always tell everybody it gives your horse a hobby because they spend all day trying to get the blade of grass <laughs> right. to go up the little hole. And that's good. They've got something to do all day. Um, but you want to avoid them getting out onto grass. And even if you try to say, well, I'll just turn them out for a couple hours instead of all day long. There's been studies that have watched horses and behaviorally, especially these really um, voracious eating ponies, they'll eat their whole day's worth in a couple of hours, four hours. And so less time doesn't work muzzling them, dry lot, or no turnout when they're really um, bad or their feet are sore. So, so somebody that puts a muzzle on their horse and they don't like it that day, your recommendation is to stick with it. Stick with it. Yep. Absolutely, because they're going to be less happy if their horse has very sore feet. All right. So I think this has been um, some really great advice. So I think if we're going to kind of sum it up, if you've got one of those obese horses or anything that's shown hoof pain, radiographs might be your friend to see, hey, maybe there is something going on that it's endocrinopathic, right? So the endocrine system's going wonky. 
uh, versus something else. We really have to control the diet in these guys. It sounds like we've definitely got some medications that might be on reserve, right? We don't go to medication first. We do diet restriction first. But if you've got a tricky one, actually testing your individual horse's response to that feed may be warranted. And there is a second test we didn't mention, but there's two types of tests, and it might be worth trying both tests if one looks normal and you haven't reached the answer yet. There is an uh, IV test where you give insulin and see how the animal responds. So one, we give the sugar, and the second, we give the insulin. And those are two different tests, and different horses might respond differently to the two different types of tests. Um, but if your horse is obese, <clears throat> excuse me, and has a crusty neck, you are crusty neck. You are never wrong to control that diet. Okay, even though they really love to eat and they're very happy to see us when we feed them. Dubbing through food <laughs> is a bad thing in these particular horses and ponies and even donkeys. Yes, don't forget our donkeys, <laughs> Doctor Holbrook. Any other thoughts? I think we covered it. Pretty sure we covered it. Okay. So stay tuned again. We've got new research coming out all the time that really helps us address this problem that uh, we had all these laminated courses in the past and we were really trying, I think, to define what's happening in these individuals. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us for this edition of our Tack Box Talk. It's been certainly enjoyable. Dr. Holbrook, I do wish you well in Florida. Because <laughs> I hate to see thank you go. You very much. <laughs> and don't worry, we can do this on the phone. <laughs> you are not off the hook. No, you are not. So, and again, for you guys uh, really giving us your expertise and what your kind of life's work has been about. Thank so, you for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. So that has been our latest edition of our Tech Box Talk, Four Stories with a Purpose.